ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. That's US soccer fans after their team won the last Women's World Cup. In some ways, they got what they wanted too. The men's and women's teams are now paid equally by their federation. Globally, there are clearly issues remaining. We are two months out from the next Women's World Cup. Australia's hosting it. The biggest European markets still don't have TV broadcast deals. FIFA says the offers are so poor, they won't entertain them. They'd rather a blackout than undersell. The story is more than a little ironic on a number of fronts. Will FIFA follow through on its threat? What moral obligation do broadcasters have to spend up? How could it impact Australian football's big moment? I'm Patrick Stack. This is ABC Sport Daily. Sam Lewis writes on football and other things for ABC Sports. Sam, we are closing in on the Women's World Cup. And while we're very excited here in Australia, broadcasters in some big European markets aren't so fired up. What can you tell us about their interest in the tournament from a broadcast rights perspective? Yeah, so the past six months have been quite interesting in terms of this discussion. FIFA President Gianni Infantino has regularly spoken publicly about the fact that a number of major European broadcasters are either reluctant to or are really not offering very much money at all for the rights to broadcast the Women's World Cup. The reason why this is kind of all happening for context is that this is the first time that the men's and women's tournaments are actually being sold separately. Historically, the both of them tended to be bundled in together. So when a broadcaster would come to FIFA and say, we're interested in broadcasting this tournament, FIFA would throw them the men's and then just sort of bundle in the women's on the side. So there was never really any true way of measuring what value each of those tournaments had. So the 2023 edition is going to be the first time that we actually get a sense of what the Women's World Cup as a standalone product is actually worth. But the issue is that for a lot of European broadcasters, this tournament is operating in a very different kind of time zone. It's going to be um, outside of primetime hours, which is not going to be good for viewership and it's not going to be good for advertisers. So that coupled with the sort of just general apathy towards the women's game, which continues to perpetuate across the sport, they have been offering what Gianni Infantino claims is anywhere from 10 to 100 times less money for the Women's World Cup broadcast rights compared to the men's. And Infantino has been increasingly furious about this. He recently came out and has basically threatened to block the broadcasts from a number of European countries. They should help us because otherwise we'll simply not sell these rights at these undervalued prices to them. And, well, the European public will not be able to watch the Women's World Cup, which after the success of the last tournament in France, after the success of the Euro, would be really, really a pity. If they continue to lowball their offers, because he believes that uh, the time is, is right and ripe for all of these organisations to finally be valuing the women's game uh, in the way that he believes that it should, which, as we'll get into, is absolutely dripping in irony. So it's a really interesting time. Sam, that feels like a blunt instrument, you know, real sort of cutting off your nose to spite your face areas from Infantino, no? Yeah, absolutely. This is a problem largely of FIFA's own creation. And 
there, as I've written for the ABC Sport website today, there are so many layers of hypocrisy that are kind of threaded throughout this. Like the first is, and probably the most important is the fact that over time, FIFA's own undervaluing of women's football has permeated throughout all the rest of the ecosystem from media rights to broadcasting to clubs to federations. Every single aspect of football has taken FIFA's lead when it comes to how we value and how we monetize and how we commercialize women's football. One of the first uh, things that we did was to create in FIFA, it did not exist, a women's football division did not exist. Uh, it took us over 100 years to do it. And now he's turning around and pointing to these organisations and saying they're the problem when actually they've just been following the rules that FIFA has effectively set for them in terms of the culture and the economy of the game. And it also seems like such a counterproductive measure to threaten broadcast blackouts in some of the biggest markets for women's football in Europe when you claim that your ultimate goal is to grow the game. Like, <laughs> that just doesn't make any logical sense to me. It is just this blunt instrument. It feels like a game of poker, like he's trying to just draw them out and to, to get them to commit to something when he actually doesn't see the bigger picture of the potential consequences of that. What's really going to be quite interesting, I think, is what happens now? What happens in the next three months before the women's tournament? If these broadcasters don't stump up the amount of money that he believes they ought to, which uh, we don't really know how he bases those that logic or what metrics he draws upon, but he says that the Women's World Cup often draws half the number of viewers at the very least as what the Men's World Cup does. Very successful Women's World Cup in France in 2019 with 1.2 billion viewers uh, all over the world, more than 1 million in the stadiums. This shows the, the magnitude of this, of this event, that the next World Cup in, uh, in Australia and New Zealand will be even bigger than that with 2 billion viewers. So by virtue of that metric, there should be hundreds of millions of dollars involved in the broadcast offers from these European nations, but that's not what we're seeing. So is there a potential benchmark that he, that needs to be met for FIFA to say, yep, you're, you're allowed to have these rights? Or alternatively, FIFA have their own broadcast platform called FIFA Plus, where they can very readily broadcast all the games themselves and go direct to the consumer rather than going through the third party of a broadcaster. But the other irony with all of that, of course, is that FIFA themselves want to make money. They are a profit-driven machine, just like all of these broadcasters are. So there's an incredible hypocrisy to pointing to these organizations and saying, you have a moral obligation to support women's football. You have the moral imperative and responsibility to grow this product in the same way that we are. Broadcasters, especially public broadcasters, funded by taxpayers' money, should put uh, their action behind their words because they rightfully criticize football organizations or other sports organizations uh, for uh, uh, not paying equally women. When this whole tussle between FIFA and the broadcasters in the first place is because FIFA wants their money. So <laughs> like it's just, it's an absolutely bonkers scenario and it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens. The capitalists out there would argue this is a simple case of the market not valuing the product. Have we heard from the broadcasters at all about their position? You know, why is it their responsibility to bid against themselves? That's a great question. No, we haven't heard from the broadcasters. 
And it would be really interesting to see what their rationale is for this. You would assume that they will lean on old arguments about viewership figures, about sponsorship deals, about the fact that just not as many people give a crap about women's football as what they do men's. And so the way that FIFA could potentially respond to that in terms of presenting viewership figures, consumption, social media engagement, all those figures that are often relied upon when it comes to this kind of argument is going to be fascinating. But I think what both of those positions will ultimately leave out is context and history. People forget that women's football was banned for 50 years. And in that time, men's football had an absolutely clean air in order to flourish, in order to embed itself in culture and in the economy and in the traditions and in the the language of people around the world. That's the reason why football is where it is now on the men's side. It's why it is this behemoth financially and culturally. So women's football is starting from a lot further back. It's trying to make up so much ground, so much faster. And as we've seen, even just in the last four to five years, it really is accelerating beyond the speed that I think anyone really anticipated that it would. We had 172 countries participating in the qualifiers of this World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. The the last World Cup in France had only 143 countries participating. Now it was 172 and today we have 188 countries ranked uh, in the FIFA ranking. So it is moving, it is getting bigger, it is getting more impactful. So you have to really take that history into consideration when you talk about how we value this particular product now. In addition to all of these attitudes, these outdated beliefs that no one cares about women's football, when all of the data shows that year on year, increasingly more and more people are coming to watch it. Ultimately, as it has always done, women's football is going to continue to flourish. And if these broadcasters aren't going to get on board, then that's going to be their problem going forward. From what you're saying here, it sounds as though the women's game, you know, as it continues to seek pay parity, is really going to take some pain from this overall conversation as it seeks to achieve that objective. I also wonder what this might mean for the future of World Cups in men's and women's and even just generally events across the football calendar. Are we less likely to see big ticket items like this in markets that don't align with big broadcasting nations as a consequence? Yeah, that's another really good question. Again, we need to think about the sort of the global economy of football like a sort of visual map where you see the the conglomeration of economies in Europe, in sort of the Americas, but you don't really see that much in, you know, Africa, Asia, the Pacific, these continents where football has been chronically underdeveloped and under-resourced by FIFA and by their own respective federations. And yet those are the continents that have this incredible potential, particularly in Asia. Asia is the most populous continent on the planet and one of the most untapped footballing communities in the world. I don't know why FIFA hasn't tried harder to really capitalize on that. You know, we're hosting a Women's World Cup in Asia. We have some of the biggest populations in some of these countries in our time zone. What are they doing to capitalize on that? How are they starting to shift the power from Europe and the Americas and South, particularly South America towards these other population bases that haven't really been given that spotlight or that financial opportunity in the past? So I'm really curious to see how these kinds of ebbs and flows affect these big ticket items, as you say. 
But FIFA needs to really start to think about where its priorities are moving forward. If it cares about growth in football, it's pretty much already hit its ceiling in certain markets. It can't really get much bigger than what it already is in Europe. So where's the next opportunity? Where is the next untapped market? To me, it seems pretty obvious, but maybe it's not so obvious to them. Sam Lewis, thanks for your time. Thanks, Pat. Headlines. Staying with football a moment and not sure if you saw it, but Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp pinged his hamstring while celebrating the Reds win over Tottenham in the Premier League this week. He did so while trying to stick it to a bemused fourth official as Klopp has been bickering with referees of late. Aside from a pinged string, there's been other punishments. The English FA has charged him with improper conduct over the incident. Here's Klopp on the matter. Bad enough. So, how is that? Fair punishment for behaving not in the right way. That's it. I have pain for a few days, Mr. Tierney not. I will be ready to do what I do, always do, and the celebrations, if we have something to celebrate, will be much calmer. The Lakers have opened their playoff series with a five-point victory over the Warriors. As we touched on in yesterday's podcast, this series is also very much a study on Steph Curry versus LeBron James. Both shone in Game 1 with Curry managing 27 points. King James had 22, but both outshone by LA's Anthony Davis, who had 30 and 23 rebounds. Elsewhere, Philadelphia's Joel Embiid was crowned league MVP. His 76ers will be hoping there's more trophies to come for the Cameroon native as they chase an elusive NBA title. New South Wales forward Jake Trebojevic will be unavailable for the Origin opener. He has suffered a calf injury a month out from Game 1 of the series, which is taking part in known rugby league heartland of Adelaide. Go Rams! It's been unofficial for weeks. Now, it's official. AFL CEO, the outgoing one, Gil McLaughlin, has announced Tassie has an AFL team licence. Now begins the fun discussion of what they might be named. I'm Patrick Stack. This is ABC Sport Daily, produced by Poppy Penny. Thanks to the World Trade Organisation for the extra audio used in this episode. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.